Bears and Dacoits, A Tale of the Cats, by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 1. A merry party was sitting in the veranda of one of the largest and handsomest bungalows of Pune. It belongs to Colonel Hastings, colonel of a native regiment stationed there, and at present, in virtue of seniority, commanding a brigade. Tiffin was on, and three or four officers and four ladies had taken their seats in the comfortable cane lounge chairs, which form the invariable furniture of the veranda of a well-ordered bungalow. Permission had been duly asked and granted by Mrs. Hastings, and the cheroots had just begun to draw, when Miss Hastings, a niece of the colonel, who had only arrived the previous week from England, said, "'Uncle, I'm quite disappointed. Mrs. Lyons showed me the bear she'd got tied up in her compound, and it's the most wretched little thing, not bigger than Rover, Papa's retriever, and it's full-grown. I thought bears were great fierce creatures, and this poor little thing seemed so restless and unhappy that I thought it quite a shame not to let it go.' Colonel Hastings smiled rather grimly. And yet, small and insignificant as that bear is, my dear, it's a question whether he is not as dangerous an animal to meddle with as a man-eating tiger. What? That wretched little bear, uncle? Yes, that wretched little bear. Any experienced sportsman will tell you that hunting those little bears is as dangerous a sport as tiger hunting on foot, to say nothing of tiger hunting from an elephant's back, in which there is scarcely any danger whatever. I can speak feelingly about it, for my career was pretty nearly brought to an end by a bear, just after I entered the army some thirty years ago, at a spot within a few miles from here. I've got the scars on my shoulder and arm still. Oh, do tell me all about it, Miss Hastings said, and the request being seconded by the rest of the party, none of whom, with the exception of Mrs. Hastings, had ever heard the story before, for the colonel was a somewhat chary of relating his special experience. He waited till they had all drawn up their chairs as close as possible, and then, giving two or three vigorous puffs at his cheroot, began as follows. Thirty years ago, in 1855, things were not as settled in the Deccan as they are now. There was no idea of insurrection on a large scale, but we were going through one of those outbreaks of decoity which have several times proved so troublesome. Bands of marauders kept the country in confusion, pouring down on a village, now carrying off three or four of the Bombay money-lenders, who were then, as now, the curse of the country, sometimes making an onslaught upon a body of traders, and occasionally venturing to attack small detachments of troops or isolated parties of police. They were not very formidable, but they were very troublesome and most difficult to catch, for the peasantry regarded them as patriots, and aided and shielded them in every way. The headquarters of these gangs of dacoits were the Ghats. In the thick bush and deep valleys and gorges, there they could always take refuge, while sometimes the more daring chiefs converted these detached peaks and masses of rock, numbers of which you can see as you come up the Ghat by railway, into almost impregnable fortresses. Many of these masses of rock rise as sheer up from the hillside as walls of masonry, and look at a short distance like ruined castles. 
Some are absolutely inaccessible. Others can only be scaled by experienced climbers, and, although possible for the natives with their bare feet, are impracticable to European troops. Many of these rock fortresses were at various times the headquarters of famous Dacoit leaders, and unless the summits happened to be commanded from some higher ground within gunshot range, they were all but impregnable, except by starvation. When driven to bay, these fellows would fight well. Well, about the time I joined, the Dacoits were unusually troublesome. The police had a hard time of it, and almost lived in the saddle, and the cavalry were constantly called up to help them, while detachments of infantry from the station were under canvas at several places along the top of the Ghats, to cut the bands off from their strongholds, and to aid, if necessary, in turning them out of their rock fortresses. The natives in the valleys at the foot of the Ghats, who have always been a semi-independent race, ready to rob whenever they saw a chance, were great friends with the Dacoits, and supplied them with provisions whenever the hunt on the Deccan was too hot for them to make raids in that direction. This is a long introduction, you'll say, and does not seem to have much to do with bears, but it is really necessary, as you will see. I had joined about six months when three companies of the regiment were ordered to relieve a wing of the 15th, who had been under canvas at a village some four miles to the north of the point where the line crosses the top of the Ghats. There were three white officers, and little enough to do, except when a party was sent off to assist the police. We had one or two brushes with the Dacoits, but I was not out on either occasion. However, there was plenty of shooting and a good many pigs about, so we had very good fun. Of course, as a raw hand, I was very hot for it, and as the others had both passed to the enthusiastic age, except for pig-sticking and big game, I could always get away. I was supposed not to go far from camp, because in the first place I might be wanted, and in the second because of the Dacoits and Norworthy, who was in command, used to impress upon me that I ought not to go beyond the sound of a bugle. Of course we both knew that if I intended to get any sport I must go further afoot than this, but our miller used to say, All right, sir, I will keep an ear to the camp. And he, on his part, never considered it necessary to ask where the game which appeared on the table came from. But in point of fact I never went very far, and my servant always had instructions which way to send for me if I was wanted. While as to the Dacoits, I did not believe in their having the impudence to come in broad daylight within a mile or two of our camp. I did not often go down the face of the Ghats. The shooting was good, and there were plenty of bears in those days, but it needed a long day for such an expedition, and in view of the Dacoits, who might be scattered about, was not the sort of thing to be undertaken, except with a strong party. Norworthy had not given any precise orders about it, but I must admit that he said one day, "'Of course you won't be fool enough to think of going down the Ghats, Hastings.' But I did not look at that as the equivalent to a direct order. "'Whatever I should do now,' the Colonel put in, on seeing a furtive smile on the faces of his male listeners. "'However, I never meant to go down, though I used to stand on the edge and look longingly down into the bush, and fancy I saw bears moving about in scores. But I didn't think I should have gone into their country if they had not come into mine. One day the fellow who always carried my spare gun or flask, and who was a sort of shikari in a small way, 
told me he had heard that a farmer, whose house stood near the edge of the Ghats some two miles away, had been seriously annoyed by his fruit and corn being stolen by bears. I said, I'll go and have a look at the place to-morrow. There is no parade, and I can start early. You may as well tell the mess-cook to put up a basket with some tiffin and a bottle of claret, and get a boy to carry it over. The bears not come in day, Raman said. Of course not, I replied. Still, I may like to find out which way they come. Just do as you're told. The next morning, at seven o'clock, I was at the farmer's, spoken of, and there was no mistake as to the bears. A patch of Indian corn had been ruined by them, and two dogs had been killed. The native was in a terrible state of rage and alarm. He said that on moonlight nights he had seen eight of them, and they came and sniffed around the door of the cottage. "'Well, why don't you fire through the window at them?' I asked scornfully, for I had seen a score of tame bears in captivity, and, like you, Mary, was inclined to despise them, though there was far less excuse for me, for I had heard stories which should have convinced me that, small as he is, the Indian bear is not a beast to be attacked with impunity. Upon walking to the edge of the Ghats there was no difficulty in discovering the route by which the bears came up to the farm. For a mile to the light and left the ground fell away as if cut with a knife, leaving a precipice of over a hundred feet sheer down, but close by where I was standing was the head of a watercourse, which in time had gradually worn a sort of cleft in the wall, up or down, which it was not difficult to make one's way. Further down this little gorge widened out and became a deep ravine, and further still a wide valley, where it opened upon the flats far below us. About half a mile down, where the ravine was deepest and darkest, was a thick clump of trees and jungle. I asked Raman, "'That's where the bears are?' He nodded. "'It seems no distance. I could get down and back in time for Tiffin, and perhaps bag a couple of bears. For a young sportsman the temptation was great. "'How long would it take us to go down and have a shot or two at them?' "'No good go down, master.' Come here at night, shoot bears when they come up. I had thought of that, but in the first place it did not seem much sport to shoot the beasts from cover when they were quietly eating, and in the next place I knew that Norworthy could not, even if he were willing, give me leave to go out of camp at night. I waited, hesitating for a few minutes, and then I said to myself, It is of no use waiting. I could go down and get a bear and be back again while I am thinking of it. Then to Raman, No, come along. We'll have a look through that wood anyhow. Raman evidently did not like it. Not easy find bear, Sahib. He very cunning. Well, very likely we shan't find him, I said. But we can try anyhow. Bring that bottle with you. The tiffin basket can wait here till we come back. In another five minutes I had begun to climb down the watercourse, the shikari following me. I took the double-barreled rifle and handed him the shotgun, having first dropped a bullet down each barrel over the charge. The ravine was steep, but there were bushes to hold on by, and although it was hot work and took a good deal longer than I expected, we at last got down to the place which I had fixed upon as likely to be the bear's home. "'Sahib, climb up top,' Raman said. "'Come down through wood. No good fire at bear when he above.' I'd heard that before, but I was hot, the sun was pouring down, there was not a breath of wind, and it looked a long way up to the top of the wood. "'Give me the claret,' 
It would take too long to search the wood regularly. We'll sit down here for a bit, and if we can see anything moving up in the wood, well and good. If not, we'll come back again another day with some beaters and dogs. So saying, I sat down with my back against a rock, at a spot where I could look up among the trees for a long way through a natural vista. I had a drink of the claret, and then I sat and watched till gradually I dropped off to sleep. I don't know how long I slept, but it was some time, and I woke up with a sudden start. Raman, who had, I fancy, been asleep too, also started up. The noise which had aroused us was made by a rolling stone striking a rock, and looking up I saw some fifty yards away, not in the wood, but on the rocky hillside on our side of the ravine, a bear, standing as though unconscious of our presence, snuffing the air. As was natural, I seized my rifle, cocked it, and took aim, unheeding a cry of, No, no, Sahib, from Raman. However, I was not going to miss such a chance as this, and I let fly. The beast had been standing sideways to me, and as I saw him fall, I felt sure I had hit him in the heart. I gave a shout of triumph, and was about to climb up, when, from behind the rock on which the bear had stood, appeared another, growling fiercely. On seeing me, it at once prepared to come down. Stupidly, taken by surprise and being new at it, I fired at once at its head. The bear gave a spring, and then, it seemed instantaneously, down it came at me. Whether it rolled down, or slipped down, or ran down, I don't know but it came almost as if it had jumped straight at me. "'My gun!' Raman, I shouted, holding out my hand. There was no answer. I glanced round and found that the scoundrel had bolted. I had time, and only just time, to take a step backwards and to club my rifle when the brute was upon me. I got one fair blow at the side of its head, a blow that would have smashed the skull of any civilized beast into pieces, and which did fortunately break the brute's jaw. Then, in an instant, he was upon me, and I was fighting for life. My hunting-knife was out, and with my left hand I had the beast by the throat, while with my right I tried to drive my knife into its ribs. My bullet had gone through his chest. The impetus of his charge had knocked me over, and we rolled on the ground, he tearing with his claws at my shoulder and arm, I stabbing and struggling, my great effort being to keep my knees up so as to protect my body with them from his hind claws. After the first blow with his paw, which laid my shoulder open, I did not think I felt any special pain whatever. There was a strange faint sensation, and my whole energy seemed centered in the two ideas, to strike and to keep my knees up. I knew that I was getting faint, but I was dimly conscious that his efforts, too, were relaxing. His weight on me seemed to increase enormously, and the last idea that flashed across me was that it was a drawn fight. The next idea of which I was conscious was that I was being carried. I seemed to be swinging about, and I thought I was at sea. Then there was a little jolt and a sense of pain. Oh, a collision, I muttered, and opened my eyes. Beyond the fact that I seemed in a yellow world, a bright orange-yellow, my eyes did not help me, and I lay vaguely wondering about it all, till the rocking ceased. There was another bump, and then the yellow world seemed to come to an end and as the daylight streamed in upon me, I fainted again. This time, when I awoke to consciousness, things were clearer. I was stretched by a little stream. A native woman was sprinkling my face and washing the blood from my wounds, while another, 
who had with my own knife cut off my coat and shirt, was tearing the latter into strips to bandage my wounds. The yellow world was explained. I was lying on the yellow robe of one of the women. They tied the ends together, placed a long stick through them, and carried me in the bag-like hammock. They nodded to me when they saw I was conscious, and brought water in a large leaf and poured it into my mouth. Then one went away for some time and came back with some leaves and bark. These they chewed and put on my wounds, bound them up with strips of my shirt, and then again knotted the ends of the cloth and, lifting me up, went on as before. I was sure that we were much lower down the gap than we had been when I was watching for the bears, and we were now going still lower. However, I knew very little Hindustani, nothing of the language the women spoke. I was too weak to stand, too weak even to think much, and I dozed and woke and dozed again until, after what seemed to me many hours of travel, we stopped again, this time before a tent. Two or three old women and four or five men came out, and there was great talking between them and the young women, for they were young, who had carried me down. Some of the party appeared angry, but at last things quieted down, and I was carried into the tent. I had fever and was, I suppose, delirious for days. I afterwards found that for fully a fortnight I had lost all consciousness. But a good constitution and the nursing of the women pulled me round. When once the fever had gone, I began to mend rapidly. I tried to explain to the women that if they would go up to the camp and tell them where I was, they would be well rewarded. But although I was sure they understood, they shook their heads, and by the fact that as I became stronger, two or three armed men always hung about the tent, I came to the conclusion that I was a sort of prisoner. This was annoying, but did not seem serious. If these people were dacoits, or, as was more likely, allies of the dacoits, I could be kept only for ransom or exchange. Moreover, I felt sure of my ability to escape when I got strong, especially as I believed that in the young women who had saved my life, both by bringing me down and by their careful nursing, I should find friends. "'Were they pretty, Uncle?' Mary Hastings broke in. "'Never mind whether they were pretty, Mary. They were better than pretty.' "'No, but we like to know, Uncle.' Well, except the soft dark eyes common to the race, and the good temper and light-heartedness also so general among Hindu girls, and the tenderness which women feel toward a creature whose life they have saved, whether it's a wounded bird or a drowning puppy, I suppose they were nothing remarkable in the way of beauty. But at the time, I know what I thought of them. Charming. End of chapter 1 Bears and Dacoits a Tale of the Gats by G. A. Henty. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Michael Harris. Chapter 2 Just as I was getting strong enough to walk and was beginning to think of making my escape, a band of five or six fellows armed to the teeth came in and made signs that I was to go with them. It was evidently an arranged thing. The girls only were surprised. But they were at once turned out, and as we started, I could see two crouching figures in the shade with their clothes over their heads. I had a native garment thrown over my shoulders, and in five minutes after the arrival of the fellows, found myself on my way. 
It took us some six hours before we reached our destination, which was one of those natural rock citadels. Had I been in my usual health, I could have done the distance in an hour and a half, but I had to rest constantly, and was finally carried rather than helped up. I had gone not unwillingly, for the men were clearly by their dress, dacoits at the deckhand, and I had no doubt that it was intended either to ransom or exchange me. At the foot of this natural castle were some twenty or thirty more robbers, and I was led to a rough sort of arbor, in which it was lying on a pile of maize straw, a man who was evidently their chief. He rose, and we exchanged salams. "'What is your name, Sahib?' he asked in Maratha. "'Hastings, Lieutenant Hastings,' I said, and yours. "'Sevashi Pont,' he said. Now this was bad. I had fallen into the hands of the most troublesome, most ruthless, and most famous of the dacoit leaders. Over and over again he had been hotly chased, but had always managed to get away. And when I last heard anything of what was going on, four or five troops of native police were scouring the country after him. He gave an order which I did not understand, and a wretched Bombay writer, I suppose a clerk of some money-lender, was dragged forward. Sivaji Pont spoke to him for some time, and the fellow then told me in English that I was to write at once to the officer commanding the troops, telling him that I was in his hands and should be put to death directly he was attacked. "'Ask him,' I said, "'if he will take any sum of money to let me go.' Shivaji shook his head very decidedly. A piece of paper was put before me, and a pen and ink, and I wrote as I had been ordered, adding, however, in French, that I had brought myself into my present position by my own folly, and would take my chance, for I well knew the importance which government attached to Sivaji's capture. I read out loud all that I had written in English, and the interpreter translated it. Then the paper was folded, and I addressed it. The officer commanding, and I was given some chupatis and a drink of water, and allowed to sleep. The dacoits had apparently no fear of any immediate attack. It was still dark, although morning was just breaking, when I was awakened and was got up to the citadel. I was hoisted rather than climbed, two men standing above with a rope tied round my body, so that I was half hauled, half pushed up the difficult places, which would have taxed all my climbing powers had I been in health. The height of this mass of rock was about a hundred feet. The top was fairly flat, with some depressions and risings, and about eighty feet long by fifty feet wide. It had evidently been used as a fortress in ages past. Along the side facing the hill were the remains of a rough wall. In the center of a depression was a cistern some four feet square, lined with stonework, and in another depression a gallery had been cut, leading to a subterranean storeroom or chamber. This natural fortress rose from the face of the hill at a distance of a thousand yards or so from the edge of the plateau, which was fully two hundred feet higher than the top of the rock. In the old days it would have been impregnable, and even at that time it was an awkward place to take, for the troops were armed only with brown bess and rifled cannon were not thought of. Looking round I could see that I was some four miles from the point where I had descended, the camp was gone, but running my eye along the edge of the plateau, I could see the tops of tents a mile to my right, and again two miles to my left. Turning round and looking into the wide valley, 
I saw a regimental camp. It was evident that a vigorous effort was being made to surround and capture the dacoits, since troops had been brought up from Bombay. In addition to the troops above and below, there would probably be a strong police force acting on the face of the hill. I did not see all these things at the time, for I was, as soon as I got to the top, ordered to sit down behind the parapet, a fellow armed to the teeth squatting down by me, and signifying that if I showed my head above the stones he would cut my throat without hesitation. There were, however, sufficient gaps between the stones to allow me to have a view of the crest of the gap, while below my view extended down to the hills behind Bombay. It was evident to me now why the dacoits did not climb up into the fortress. There were dozens of similar crags on the face of the gaps, and the troops did not as yet know their whereabouts. It was a sort of blockade of the whole face of the hills which was being kept up, and there were probably enough several bands of dacoits lurking in the jungle. There were only two guards and myself on the rock plateau. I discussed with myself the chances of my overpowering them and holding the top of the rock till help came, but I was greatly weakened and not a match for a boy, much less for the two stalwart Marathas. Besides, I was by no means sure that the way I had been brought up was the only possible path to the top. The day passed off quietly. The heat on the bare rock was frightful, but one of the men, seeing how weak and ill I really was, fetched a thick rug from the storehouse, and with the aid of a stick made a sort of a lean-to against the wall, under which I lay sheltered from the sun. Once or twice during the day I heard a few distant musket shots, and once a sharp, heavy outburst of firing. It must have been three or four miles away, but it was on the side of the gap, and showed that the troops or police were at work. My guards looked anxiously in that direction, and uttered sundry curses. When it was dark, Sivajee and eight of the dacoits came up. From what they said I gathered that the rest of the band had dispersed, trusting either to get through the line of their pursuers, or, if caught, to escape with slight punishment. The men who remained, being too deeply concerned in murderous outrages to hope for mercy. Sivaji himself handed me a letter which the man who had taken my note had brought back in reply. Major Knapp, the writer, who was the second in command, said that he could not engage the government, but that if Lieutenant Hastings was given up, the act would certainly dispose the government to take the most merciful view possible but that if, on the contrary, any harm was suffered by Lieutenant Hastings, every man taken would be at once hung. Sivaji did not appear put out about it. I did not think he expected any other answer, and imagined that his real object in writing was simply to let them know that I was a prisoner, and so enable him the better to paralyze the attack upon a position which he no doubt considered all but impregnable. I was given food, and was then allowed to walk as I chose upon the little plateau, two of the dacoits taking post as sentries at the steepest part of the path, while the rest gathered, chatting and smoking, in the depression in front of the storehouse. It was still light enough for me to see for some distance down the face of the rock, and I strained my eyes to see if I could discern any other spot at which an ascent or descent was possible. The prospect was not encouraging. At some places the face fell sheer away from the edge, and so evident was the impracticability of escape that the only place which I glanced at twice was the western side, which is the one away from the hill. 
Here it sloped gradually for a few feet. I took off my shoes and went down to the edge. Below some ten feet was a ledge, on to which with care I could get down, but below that was a sheer fall of some fifty feet. As a means of escape it was hopeless, but it struck me that if an attack was made I might slip away and get on to the ledge. Once there I could not be seen except by a person standing where I now was, just on the edge of the slope, a spot to which it was very unlikely that anyone would come. The thought gave me a shadow of hope, and, returning to the upper end of the platform, I lay down, and in spite of the hardness of the rock was soon asleep. The pain of my aching bones woke me up several times, and once, just as the first tinge of dawn was coming, I thought I could hear movements in the jungle. I raised myself somewhat, and I saw that the sounds had been heard by the dacoits, for they were standing, listening, and some of them were bringing spare firearms from the storehouse in evident preparation for attack. As I afterwards learned, the police had caught one of the dacoits trying to effect his escape, and by means of a little of the ingenious torture to which the Indian police then frequently resorted, when their white officers were absent, they obtained from him the exact position of Sivaji's band, and learned the side from which the ascent must be made. That the dacoit and his band were still upon the slopes of the ghats they knew, and were gradually narrowing the circle but there were so many rocks and hiding-places that the process of searching was a slow one, and the intelligence was so important that the news was off at once to the colonel, who gave orders for the police to surround the rock at daylight, and to storm it if possible. The garrison was so small that the police were alone ample for the work, supposing that the natural difficulties were not altogether insuperable. Just at daybreak there was a distant noise of men moving in the jungle, and the dacoit halfway down the path fired his gun. He was answered by a shout and a volley. The dacoits hurried out from the chamber and lay down on the edge, where, sheltered by a parapet, they commanded the path. They paid no attention to me, and I kept as far away as possible. The fire began, a quiet, steady fire, a shot at a time, and in strong contrast to the rattle kept up from the surrounding jungle. But every shot must have told, as man after man who strove to climb that steep path fell. It lasted only ten minutes, and then all was quiet again. The attack had failed, as I knew it must do, for two men could have held the place against an army. A quarter of an hour later a gun from the crest above spoke out, and a round-shot whistled above our heads. Beyond annoyance, an artillery fire could do no harm for the party could be absolutely safe within the store-cave. The instant the shot flew overhead, however, Sivaji Punt beckoned to me and motioned me to take my seat on the wall facing the guns. Hesitation was useless, and I took my seat with my back to the dacoits and my face to the hill. One of the dacoits, as I did so, pulled off the native cloth which covered my shoulders, in order that I might be clearly seen. Just as I took my place, another round shot hummed by, but then there was a long interval of silence. With a field-glass every feature must have been distinguishable to the gunners, and I had no doubt that they were waiting for orders as to what to do next. I glanced round and saw that with the exception of one fellow squatted behind the parapet some half-dozen yards away, clearly as a sentry to keep me in place, all the others had disappeared. Some, no doubt, were on sentry down the path, the others were in the store beneath me. 
After half an hour's silence, the gun spoke out again. Evidently the gunners were told to be as careful as they could, for some of the shots went wide of the left, others on the right. A few struck the rock below me. The situation was not pleasant, but I thought that at a thousand yards they ought not to strike me, and I tried to distract my attention by thinking out what I should do under every possible contingency. Presently I felt a crash and a shock, and fell backwards to the ground. I was not hurt, and on picking myself up saw that the ball had struck the parapet to the left, just where my guard were sitting, and he lay covered with its fragments. His turban lay some yards behind him. Whether he was dead or not I neither knew nor cared. I pushed down some of the parapet where I had been sitting, dropped my cap on the edge outside so as to make it appear that I had fallen over, and then, picking up the man's turban, ran to the other end of the platform and scrambled down to the ledge. Then I began to wave my arms about, I had nothing on above the waist, and in a moment I saw a face with a uniform cap peer out through the jungle, and a hand was waved. I made signs to him to make his way to the foot of the perpendicular wall of rock beneath me. I then unwound the turban, whose length was, I knew, amply sufficient to reach to the bottom, and then looked round for something to write on. I had my pencil still in my trousers' pocket, but not a scrap of paper. I picked up a flattish piece of rock and wrote on it, Get a rope ladder quickly, I can haul it up. Ten men in garrison, they are all under cover. Keep on firing to distract their attention. I tied the stone to the end of the turban and looked over. A non-commissioned officer of the police was already standing below. I lowered the stone, he took it, waved his hand to me, and was gone. An hour passed. It seemed an age. The round shots still rang overhead, and the fire was now much more heavy and sustained than before. Presently I again saw a movement in the jungle, and Norworthy's face appeared, and he waved his arm in greeting. Five minutes more, and a party were gathered at the foot of the rock, and a strong rope was tied to the cloth. I pulled it up. A rope ladder was attached to it, and the top rung was, in a minute or two, in my hands. To it was tied a piece of paper with the words, "'Can you fasten the ladder?' I wrote on the paper, "'No, but I can hold it for a light weight.' I put the paper with a stone in the end of the cloth and lowered it again. Then I sat down, tied the rope round my waist, got my feet against two projections, and waited. There was a jerk, and then I felt someone was coming up the rope ladder. The strain was far less than I expected, but the native policeman who came up first did not weigh half as much as an average Englishman. There were now two of us to hold. The officer in command of the police came up next, then Norworthy, then a dozen more police. I explained the situation, and we mounted to the upper level. Not a soul was to be seen. Quickly we advanced and took up a position to command the door of the underground chamber, while one of the police waved a white cloth from his bayonet as a signal to the gunners to cease firing. Then the police officer hailed the party within the cave. Sivaji Punt, you may as well come out and give yourself up. We are in possession, and resistance is useless. A yell of rage and surprise was heard, and the dacoits, all desperate men, came bounding out, firing as they did so. Half of their number were shot down at once, and the rest, after a short, sharp struggle, were bound hand and foot. That's pretty well all of the story, I think. Sivaji Punt was one of the killed. The prisoners were all either hung or imprisoned for life. 
I escaped my blowing up for having gone down the ghats after the bear, because, after all, Sivaji Punt might have defied their force for months had I not done so. It seemed that that scoundrel Raman had taken back word that I was killed. Norworthy had sent down a strong party who found the two dead bears, and who, having searched everywhere without finding any signs of my body, came to the conclusion that I had been found and carried away, especially as they ascertained that natives used that path. They had offered rewards, but nothing was heard of me till my note saying I was in Sivaji's hands arrived. And did you ever see the women who carried you off? No, Mary, I never saw them again. I did, however, after immense trouble, succeed in finding out where it was that I had been taken to. I went down at once, but found the village deserted. Then, after much inquiry, I found where the people had moved to, and sent messages to the women to come up to the camp, but they never came and I was reduced at last to sending them down two sets of silver bracelets, necklaces, and bangles, which must have rendered them the envy of all the women on the ghats. They sent back a message of grateful thanks, and I never heard of them afterwards. No doubt their relatives, who knew that their connection with the dacoits was now known, would not let them come. However, I had done all I could, and I have no doubt the women were perfectly satisfied. So you see, my dear, that the Indian bear, small as he is, is an animal which it is as well to leave alone, at any rate when he happens to be up on the side of a hill while you are at the foot. End of Bears and Dacoits A Tale of the Gats by G. A. Henty Read by Michael Harris